I'd like to uh, offer a prayer on your behalf. Uh, If you have a specific uh, prayer need, uh, either for yourself or for a loved one, uh, I just ask you to stand where you are so that I can pray for you. And uh, throughout the congregation, if you're near someone who's standing, would you reach out and just uh, touch a shoulder or be in contact? And we just encourage you to extend your grace to those around you. Father, um, sometimes we are... um, don't even know how to praise you. We don't know how to sing your praises, but we look around us and we recognize that there are not only a thousand ways, but there are 10,000 ways to sing praises to you. We look at your amazing creation. We look at our families. We look at the lives that we live and all of the blessings around us and we praise you, O Father. We lift up your name. Bless your name. Oh, my Lord, bless your holy name. Father, this morning, I would just want to, uh, as a congregation, lift up our prayers and our thoughts to all of those who are suffering on the East Coast from the hurricane, Sandy. Lord, I just want to take a moment now for us as a congregation to offer prayers and thoughts uh, on their behalf. So in the silence of this moment, would you Simply offer your prayers to the Lord on behalf of the victims. Father, we're so far away, but yet we're so near. And the um, literally millions of people who are suffering, suffering for those um, hundreds of people who have died and have been wounded, we lift them up to you, Father. You're a God of grace and a God of goodness. Lord, we pray for our own congregation, those who are standing for themselves or for a loved one. Father, if there's a physical need, if there's a disease, if there is a, a broken body, we pray, Father, that your healing touch would simply flow down into this body, into these, your children, and that they would accept and receive your healing, body, soul, and spirit, by the blood of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for your great grace. And Lord, for those who are struggling with relationships or jobs or finances or all of these things that seem to bog us down, I I would lift them up to you, Father. You have said in your word in 1 Corinthians 15 that you are the God of all comfort. And so we pray, Father, that you would bring your comfort and your care to every person in this room, especially those who are standing. And Father, if there are needs here today that are spiritual, some perhaps don't know you or they feel far, far away from you, I would pray that prayer that you shared in the Gospels when Jesus said, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Father, we do draw near to you by faith and we pray that you would draw near to us. Fill this room, fill this building with your presence. And Lord, now as we go to open the word of God, I pray that the word would speak powerfully into our lives, the transforming power of your holy word. I pray that the spirit of God would literally brood among us and wash over us as we receive this word now. And we do this in the name of Jesus. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And all of God's people together said, Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Thank you. Well, it's uh, been a a wonderful ride as we have been in the book of 1 Peter now for about, I think, five or six weeks. And uh, today is an amazing text that we're going to be looking at. Uh, And it's one that hopefully will uh, minister to you and really strengthen you. And especially those of you who are married, but it's for all of us. Uh, it talks about a Christian marriage. But there's so much context there and there's so much depth to this word that I just want to share with you some context as we begin. I will read the text in just a moment. You'll find it in First Peter chapter 3 if you want to go ahead and turn there. So what we've been talking about this week's is uh, that Peter brings us into the first century into a time of tremendous trial and tribulation and difficulty. 
And we find that because Peter wrote his book around the time that Nero was attacking and killing off uh, many, many Christians. In fact, over a hundred year period, over a hundred thousand Christians were executed and crucified. And so we're right in the middle of this. And Peter is telling us, be, be, be careful. It's dangerous. Uh, people are out to get you. Uh, you'll have a, your jobs will be boycotted. You won't be able to go to worship. You won't be able to have economic privileges. All of these things because you are going to literally be uh, reduced and squashed by the Roman Empire because Nero is trying to blame the Christians on uh, burning Rome down. So all of these things are taking place throughout Asia Minor, Minor and all of the Christians are being persecuted. Into that context, Peter writes this amazing book. And if you want to just sum up the book of First Peter in one phrase, it's this. Peter says, I want you to know that you have a hope that is alive. A living hope. And that living hope is Jesus Christ. Even though he was, he's been gone now for 30-some years and he ascended into heaven, Peter said, Jesus is gone, but his spirit is here. And I want you to know that the hope that you have, even in the midst of this terrible tribulation, these terrible trials, this persecution, in the midst of all of that, you have hope in Christ Jesus. Now, into that context of the first century, Peter also recognized that people were really put under the thumb. For instance, um, uh, we, we knew that the civil authorities were not godly people, yet two weeks ago we talked about how we are supposed to submit to the civil authorities, right? Chapter 2 of First Peter. And then the part that we didn't look at last week, but you looked at it in your small groups, is that he talked about, uh, about slaves and masters. And now, even though that institution is not from God, but that institution was a reality in the first century, and Peter said, in that context, you need to know how to, as believers who were slaves, you need to know how to respond to your masters. He said, we'll take care of the slavery thing down the road. Jesus was going to take care of that. But right now, you need to know in this context that you need to know how to behave in the proper way. And then he goes on and he talks about marriage. Now, remember, women had no rights. They had no leverage whatsoever. If a woman was kicked out of her home and she couldn't go to her parental home, she had almost no options maybe to be a prostitute or to somehow make a scratch out a living, but there was almost no opportunity for her to survive. She was under the care and protection, the umbrella of her husband. Into that context, Peter wrote the words that we're going to look at today. So here's what we're doing. Whether this institution is godly or not, civil authority, slavery, a marriage that's not fair, whether those things are fair or not, you still have to function within the, the proper authority so that you'll receive the protection you need. Peter said, this isn't going to go down easy, but you need to know that you need to follow the orders of your civil authorities. Yes, slaves, you need to follow the orders of your, those who are an authority over you. You act out your godly way of living. And women, even though you have no leverage and you have no authority, you still know to sh- you need to show deference and respect to your husbands. So this is the context in which we find our teaching today. So let's dig in. And we're going to speak to both the women today and the men to help you understand uh, the truths, the eternal truths that come from this text. Don't get hung up on the words obedience and submission. Those are real words, and we're going to talk about them. But so many times I've heard people say, well, I just don't want to submit to my husband. I just don't want to submit to my wife. I just don't want to do this. I just, you're missing the point if that's what you hear. Under this text, you'll find this amazing picture of how God wants you to live your lives whether you have tribulation or not, whether you're married or not, whether you have godly civil authorities or not, you can live your lives in such a way that the world will look at you and say, man, I don't know about becoming a Christian or a follower of Jesus. I don't know about becoming a disciple. But if that's the way disciples treat their wives, if that's the way disciples treat their husbands or their slaves, if that's the way uh, believers uh, treat the civil authorities, if that's the way they do it, I want to know more about that Christianity. I want to know more about that Jesus. So the, 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 the meat of this text is not on the surface, but it's underneath. When God wants you to live a life in such a way that the world will take notice of you and say how you treat your wife, how you treat your employer, how you live your life, how you treat the people at church, how you live your life with this kind of love, that's what is attractive to the world when they say, that's what I want for my life. So be sure you read underneath the text those words. So here's the word of God 
First Peter chapter three, verses one to seven. We're going to talk about more context in just a minute. But remember, first century slaves had no position. Women had no position. And people that are under the authority of Nero had no position, had no uh, um, leverage whatsoever. Into that context, Peter writes these words. Wives, in the same way, in what's the same way? Going back to referring to what happened with the slaves and what happened to civil authorities. That kind of authority. In the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Hear that word especially. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. When people see that, they say, man, I want, I want to know more about that Christ. I want to know more about that faith. I want to know more about that religion when they see that kind of a person. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, we're going to take that text apart, but let's just begin by talking about the obvious. Peter... An educated fisherman, now one of the leaders of the church, is describing the relationship that we're supposed to have. Remember the context, bullets flying, tribulation everywhere, women having no position, no authority, talking about the relationship that women and men are supposed to have in a marriage relationship. Peter, being a man, fisherman, uneducated, you notice that he writes six verses, ladies, to describe what you're supposed to do, and one verse to describe what men are supposed to do. One commentator said that that's because women were six times more likely to pay attention to their relationships or to try to improve them, right? I mean, women have this ability to be complex in their thinking and their relationships. Guys are very simple, you know, very simple. We, there's only one or two things we care about, you know, and, and that's pretty straightforward. So just remember, when we're talking about this, um, the women have this great responsibility in their marriage, but when we get to the men, you'll find that the men have an even greater responsibility in their marriage. But uh, quite honestly, guys, many times, we're clueless. I mean, it's like the time the um, uh, woman decided that she and her husband were going to go see a marriage counselor. And the guy was clueless, and he didn't know what's going on. I can't tell you how many times in my office someone's come in and said, and the woman pours out her heart, and the guy said, well, I thought everything was okay, you know, and of course it's not, right? And so, so here this couple comes into the counselor's office and the woman just pours her heart out. She said, my husband's not affectionate with me. Uh, he never talks to me sweetly. He never uh, caresses me or kisses me or tells me I'm beautiful. He never does any of those things and it's so frustrating and I want intimacy with my husband, but it's just not there. And the whole time the guy is just clueless. You can tell he doesn't get it. Like, what is she talking about? And finally, the counselor is so frustrated with this husband. The counselor gets up out of his seat. He takes the woman up out of her seat. He puts her in his arms, bends her over, gives her a big romantic kiss, sets her back down, looks at the husband and said, now that's what your wife needs. And the husband says, oh, now I get it. Let's see, I can bring her in Monday, Wednesday and Friday, about two o'clock each. Guys. You need to get this, right? Today, when we talk about how you're supposed to live your lives with your wives, you need to understand this. Now, Peter's in the midst of talking about submission and authority. And again, he's used three examples. Civil authorities, master-slave, husband-wife. Now, that doesn't mean that, the, that what he's describing are godly institutions. They're not. The civil authorities was not a godly institution. The um, slave relationship was not a godly institution. And the way marriage was done in the first century was not a godly institution. Men are not supposed to rule over women. 
I don't, if you've heard that teaching somewhere, you need to go back to your Bible. And I, and I challenge you, don't listen to other preachers. You go back to your Bible and see what the Bible teaches about how men are supposed to love their wives. And it's not this power over. In fact, everywhere you see power over in the Bible, it's, it's not what God wants. God doesn't want people to have power over others. In fact, Jesus showed just the opposite. He showed power under by sacrificing, by being subservient, and by giving his life for many. And he's giving, specifically giving his life for you. So anytime you see this power over thing, people say, well, you're supposed to submit to me. Are you supposed to do that? You are not understanding the text when you see that, when you understand that. So we want to talk today about this idea of submission and authority in the context of relationships. And what this is talking about specifically is Marriage, but this is good for any relationship. The teaching today is about any relationship that you're in. Many of us are in a marriage relationship, so this is very real. Now, here's what Paul says. There's a difference between when you look at a text and you say, okay, what is this text telling me? What is the underlying message? What does God want me to know from this text? Because believe me, there's not a person in here that believes in a higher authority of Scripture than I do. What does the text say? What's the context? What's the meaning? Like when the Bible says that Peter went out and hanged himself, that doesn't mean, Karen, that you're supposed to go out and hang yourself. So you have to understand the context of what's being said. So here we have this idea of authoritarianism in a marriage. And you say, OK, that was I understand why it was there for that first century. That's the way marriage was. But what is it teaching for us today? Let me give you two amazing what I call umbrella texts. Um, there's a difference, but when you look at the Bible and you look at a, a passage or a narrative or a story, you need to ask a lot of questions of that. But two of the questions you need to ask, when especially it's a narrative about something that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago, is this teaching descriptive? It's describing what happened. Peter went out and hanged himself. There's no teaching there in terms of what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to go out and hang yourself. That's not what it's teaching. So is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? If it's prescriptive, it means that is a truth for, for then, for now, and for all eternity. Prescription. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's just not for the people in the first century. That's for all people of all time. So there's description and there's prescription. And you have to ask the text what this is. So in this case, we're talking about description of what was going on in the first century, but there is truth underneath there that is prescriptive truth. And that's the truth that we want to get to. So these two umbrella texts, when you understand the descriptive, prescriptive idea of of Scripture, the two umbrella texts, the first one is uh, Ephesians 5.21. Ephesians 5 is that great passage that talks about relationships, husbands, wives, children, how those relationships are supposed to work. And Paul did that teaching in a context that was a little less combative than the time that Peter wrote. But he wrote that and said, this is how husbands and wives are supposed to respond. And the umbrella text for that whole passage in Ephesians 5 is Ephesians 5.21. And Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when you are trying to understand what it means, wives submit to husbands, husbands love your wives. When you're trying to understand what all of those means, the umbrella text over that is mutual submission. There are times that I submit to Sherry. There are times when she submits to me. Mutual submission. And the bottom line to that text is not how we submit to each other. The bottom line is out of reverence for Christ. You submit your life to Christ. You submit your authority to Christ, and guess what? And you're not going to have a hard time being a, the kind of husband you're supposed to be. You submit your life to Christ, and you recognize what he's done for you. You're not going to have a hard time being the kind of wife God wants you to be. So that's one of those umbrella texts, mutual submission, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The other umbrella text that is prescriptive for all people for all time is found in Galatians 3.28. Paul is talking about how that Jesus Christ transformed the world, how that he transformed the world and one day he'll come back and make all things new. But in the meantime, Jesus not only transformed the world, he transformed every relationship on this planet. Every relationship is brand new. It's different. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are gone. New things are here. Everything is brand new. And this is what he says in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, that's revolutionary. 
Because when Jesus wrote this, there was only Jew or Greek or pagan. I mean, everything was separated. Everything was divided. And Peter wrote into that context. But Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Here's the umbrella truth. There is neither slave nor free. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln that freed the slaves. It was evil man that kept men in slavery, but it was Jesus who freed every slave. It was Jesus who freed every Greek. It was Jesus who freed every woman. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you want to understand the teaching of Jesus about relationships and men and women, these two umbrella texts are prescriptive for all people for all time. The others, you have to make sure that you understand the context of the day. Fair enough? So that's kind of the context of all of this teaching. Submit to the government. Slaves, even though I don't believe in slavery, Peter would say, slaves, here's how you win your master to Christ by living this life in a godly way. Wives, here's how you win your husband to Christ because he's an idiot and you're going to do it. And you do that by being submissive. That's the context in which this was written. So the first thing that was written was about the women, the first six verses. And he talks about the heart of this teaching, the heart of the teaching being this. Women, you're to best be characterized as people with unfading beauty. Now, I love our church, all of our church. Uh, we have about 56% women in our church and 44% men. Now, the reason that we, that's, that disparity is something that you all know instinctively, that in many families, the wife is the spiritual leader. She, the mom is the one that brings the kids to Sunday school, gets them in Christian education, tries to teach them. And the husband's either home watching football or he doesn't care. He's not a believer. So there's this kind of imbalance. And this isn't just our church. This is every church in the United States of America. There's this sense that um, that men are lagging behind spiritually. And again, it goes back to that idea that women are more in touch with their emotions, more in touch with kind of uh, multiple ways of thinking about things. And men aren't as clearly uh, can't cl- as clearly do that. So this idea of being having an unfading beauty. Now, think of the most beautiful woman in the world in your mind. Now, of course, the first thing I think of, because not only it's true for me, but I've trained myself to do this, is I always think of Sherry. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. But aside from Sherry, who's the most beautiful woman in the world? And for me, the last, at least the last 20 years, um, it's been a Holly Berry. She's one of the most beautiful women in the world. And even though she's in her 40s now, she's still just, just an amazing, beautiful woman. This is what she wrote or what she said in an interview with People magazine when she was voted one of the 50 most beautiful people. This is a quote from Holly Berry. Beauty? Question mark. Let me tell you something. Being thought of as a beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life. Spared me no heartache. Spared me no trouble. Love has been difficult. Beauty is essentially meaningless. And it is always transitory. Now, this is from somebody that I think most people in the world would say is one of the most beautiful people in the world. Everybody talks about outward beauty, but it's just not all it's cracked up to be. Believe me. No, you don't have to believe me because I don't really know. It's just not all that's cracked up to be. Now, according to uh, a Chicago Tribune two years ago, uh, inner beauty may not be enough these days. Okay, in an article called. When inner beauty simply isn't enough, author Wendy Donahue reports on the growing popularity of plastic surgery to improve personal appearance. And she gives some reasons why plastic surgery is becoming more and more popular. And, and this is uh, this is plastic surgery that you choose, not that you need uh, for, uh, you know, because you've had an accident or something like that. She said one of the reasons is baby boomers are turning 60 at a rate of five million a year. That's my generation. Uh, baby boomers and uh, 60 turning 60 at the rate of five million a year. And believe me, uh, when you turn 60, uh, things start drooping. Right, Jim? Well, you wouldn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you say, oh, man, I've got, you know, this is I've, I'm not what I used to be. You know, so so plastic surgery. But here's the thing that really troubles me. In 1997, um, plastic surgery procedures, 1.7 million Americans uh, did that in 2011. Over 10 million. And here's the thing that's the most frightening. 
Uh, the fastest growing demographic that's getting plastic surgery, what do you want to guess? Teenagers. Teenagers. Two million, and most, almost all of them, a breast enlargement. Okay, there's this sense in our world, and we've kind of pumped our kids full of this idea, that if you're not a Barbie doll, if you don't look like this, that there's something wrong with you. Peter says, this is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about outer beauty. Men, we all know women are beautiful. We know that. And we love the fact that they're beautiful on the outside. But what Peter's talking about is this inner beauty. And so he goes into uh, several, uh, several words that, when understood properly, really show this beautiful, amazing gift that God gives to a woman called uh, this uh, uh, unfading beauty. So in verses 1 and 2, let me read those again. We read these words. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. The purity and reverence of your lives. Now, you read that, say, you immediately go to, well, what does that mean? Well, you've, the first part of that is really the most important part. He's talking about the context, again, of wives who have unsaved husbands. Wives who don't have husbands that are believers. Now, in the first century, because women now had equal position, according to Jesus and according to Paul in Galatians 3.28, now that women had equal position, guess what? Women started going to the temple. And before, in the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, only for the high priest, holy place, just for the really good Jews. And then there was the outer court for the other Jews. And then out here was for the Gentiles. And way, 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 way out here was for the women. And now Jesus came along and he changed everything. And when the church of Jesus Christ started happening and Jews were getting converted, what happened is some of those women were going, rushing in to worship because they couldn't worship before, at least from a distance. And there's this excitement and this joy and this amazing sense of we're part of the faith and we're part of this. And that's where Paul's, uh, if you read uh, 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about women be silent in church. He's not, that's not prescriptive. He's not telling women to be silent in church. Come on, that's ridiculous when you even think about it. He's telling them, you know what? I know you're excited about this newfound faith and it's wonderful, and everything, but take it easy. You've got guys that are lagging behind you. They don't really know much about faith and you need to win your husbands to Jesus. And so in this context, that's what Peter's saying. He said, you guys need to do a good job of winning your husbands to Christ. The highest value is not how you look on the outside. The highest value is how your heart is on the inside. And is that heart so beautiful and so attractive and so engaging that your husband's going to come, up, come along and say, I want that. that. That thing that my wife has, that, that faith thing, that Jesus thing, that, that Bible thing that my wife, I want that. Because the way she treats me, the way she acts towards me, the beauty that she shows me from the inside, I am so attracted to that. I am anxious to hear about her Lord and Savior. That's what Peter's saying in this text. The context is the unsaved husbands. Don't nag. You win somebody with purity and reverence until that husband or that individual is looking over the edge and looking at your life and looking at your church and looking at your home and say, man, that is so attractive to me. The way those, that couple treats each other, the way those, those students treat other students, the ways those people treat those people that are different, different from them religiously or ethnically or a different sexual orientation, the way those people treat them, I want that. That's what I want. Instead of people going around and shaming everybody, I want that person that loves people like that. And that's what Peter's talking about. Purity, the word purity means moral goodness of your life. And the word reverence, this is a beautiful word that means a genuine love for the word. When it says that we're uh, women, you're to be reverent, that means that you have this genuine love for the Lord. It's not phony. It's not turned on at church and turned off at home. But there's this genuine love for Jesus that radiates from inside to the outside. I mean, Sherry's not here in the service. Uh, she was in the first service. But I can tell you that this woman that I am married to, I see her every morning when I leave for work. She's out on the patio. She's studying her Bible and she's praying. And I tell you, that beauty that she has on the outside, that comes from an inner beauty that's real. And it's genuine. And it's heartfelt and there's no that's She's not perfect. Believe me, she married me. So she made one mistake. No, but she this is real. This is that's what Peter is talking about. If you want your husband, whether he's saved or not, whether he's a believer or not, to look at your life and say, man. 
I mean, when I'm a creep, is that the way you treat me with that kind of respect, that kind of reverence? Man, there must be something going on in your life that I don't even understand. And your wife would say, well, that's right, honey. It's it's Jesus. It's Christ in me. The hope of glory. It's it's Jesus alive in me. That's that's what it is. That's what he's talking about. This genuine love for the Lord, this real interior aliveness of your soul that is so attractive, not only to your husband, but to every person who sees you. That's what Peter is talking about to women. He said, you do like that. You shine like that. And man, you you won't believe how many people will be attracted to you, especially your husband. Now, uh, Bruce, uh, Bruce always sends me jokes uh, and I can't use them. uh, But uh, I found an only joke that I can use. So this is for Bruce. So um, uh, Ole quit farming and he lived in a small community. And when he quit farming, he didn't have much to do. So one of the things he loved to do on a Friday night is to grill up a big old fat, juicy steak. And uh, but the problem was he lived in a community of almost everybody else in the community was Catholic. And he was the only Lutheran. His Lutheran church is way far away. And so he'd grill up these big steaks on Friday. And that aroma was so tempting to the Catholics. Of course, they couldn't eat meat on Friday. So that was a problem for them. So they decided to have a beef intervention uh, with Oli. So all the Catholics get together. They go over to Oli's house. And, they, and they, didn't, they didn't tell him the real reason, you know, that they were offended by the beef cooking on Friday. But they said, Oli, we want you to know we love you. And you're the only Lutheran in town. And uh, your church is far away. Why don't you become a Catholic uh, like us, and then we can all be a big, happy family. And Oli thought about that, and he thought, well, you know what? That, that makes some sense. I mean, we're all God's children, so whether we call ourselves Lutheran or Catholic, it doesn't really matter. So he said, I'll do it. And so the big day came. The priest uh, had Oli kneel. He put his hand on Oli's head, and he said, Oli, you were born a Lutheran. You were raised a Lutheran, and now he sprinkled some holy water on him, on Oli's head. He said, now you are a Catholic. And so everybody cheered. It was great. and Everybody's having a good time. Oh, this is awesome. And so so their their little community was just all in one. And it was great until the following Friday. Following Friday, Oli gets out a big old beefsteak, throws it on the grill. All the neighbors are smelling it. I say, oh, no, we're going to have to do another intervention with Oli. So they walk over to Oli's yard. And just before they get to him, they see Oli standing over this grill with this big fat steak on it. And he, they hear Oli say these words. He said, you were born a cow. You were raised a cow. Sprinkled some salt on it. But now you are a fish. And, 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 but you know what? You are not cows anymore. You have been transformed. Ladies, God wants this thing that's in you, that's transformed you, to be so real And so alive, there's nothing phony about it. You are so bright. You shine so beautifully. It's so genuine that God says, you you watch that, men. You look at that life and it will absolutely change the way you think about your own faith. So first Peter three, three and four says it this way. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Let me, let me pause there, a little disclaimer. It doesn't say that you're not supposed to wear makeup. I mean, some of the uh, uh, religions like the Amish and some others, they think you should be plain. You know, that's not what you, when you look at um, Song of Solomon, some other books, you recognize that there's some kind of balance. What he's saying is this. You know, there's nothing wrong with being attractive. There's nothing wrong with being beautiful. I, as you know, my little 2002 Corolla got crunched. I got a new car. I haven't even seen it yet. It's a 2007 Corolla. I'm very inconsistent when it comes, you know, very consistent when it comes to this guy. But it had lower mind. But this new car doesn't have all the paint peeling off it and the chips and the dings. I wash my car and I get it waxed and I, I make sure it's vacuumed. I really want my car to look nice. And that's not bad. So women, even if you've got a few miles on you, like my Corolla, you know, Wash and wax the car, you know, maybe a new hood, a hood ornament once in a while. It's okay. You know, it's okay. You know, we, 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 uh, besides this, guys love it. When you look nice, we love it. So we're not talking about, we're not talking about making that the most important priority. That's what Peter says. It's okay to look beautiful. Guys, we have no idea how to do that, but it's, we love our wives to do that. So it's okay to look beautiful. But what he's saying is, I want you to look beautiful on the inside. That word um, uh, adornment uh, comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means an orderly arrangement, which basically means 
ladies, it's okay to put yourself together. Okay, you don't have to be a car wreck. Neither do we. I recognize that's true. But uh, you put yourself together. That is something that is truly beautiful. Peter says is an unfading beauty of listen to this, a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, the word gentle comes from the Greek word that means meekness and it means my power under God's control. Ladies, you are called to be gentle and meek. That means that doesn't mean to be a namby pamby. It doesn't mean that you allow your husband to walk over you. That was totally inappropriate biblically. That means that your spirit is gentle. That means that you have your power under God's control. And ladies, believe me, you know this. Let me remind you, you have amazing power. When guys get around you, we kind of go, you know, we, we just totally lose it. You know, guys don't know how to respond. You have more power than you can imagine. But God says you put that power under God's control. And that means uh, your lips are under God's control. My eyes, my ears, my body, my thoughts, my emotions, my actions, my attitudes, my responses, my relationships, all under God's control. The gentle spirit is one where a Christian woman lives under a moment-by-moment leading of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens in a woman, you are so attracted to her. It is so beautiful. It is so engaging that even an unsaved husband can see that and say, you know what? I'm not sure I'm convinced about this Christian thing, but my wife is somebody amazing. And I don't know what's going on with her, but I want to find out what it is. But not only a gentle spirit, but a quiet spirit. Now, this is an interesting word. It's the same word that's used by Paul in 1 Corinthians when he said to be quiet in church. He doesn't mean not to use words. I mean, let's be honest. A woman or a man on average during any day speaks about 10,000 words. A woman speaks on average about 30,000 with gusts up to 50 or 60,000. So, you know, so, so, so we know that women are going to talk just like men are going to talk, right? We know that. So it's not about being quiet, like zipping your lip. It's an unusual Greek word that's used by Peter and by Paul. And the word means literally to be tranquil or undisturbed. The surf, like the surface of a lake on a windless afternoon. For women to be quiet, it means to be tranquil or undisturbed, not easily ruffled uh, about the cares and concerns of life. But there's this kind of peacefulness in the heart of the home and the heart of the wife. Now, that's a beautiful example, isn't it? When you understand what what Peter meant by this gentle spirit and this 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 quiet spirit, this tranquil and undisturbed uh, sense of of centeredness and and joy. That's a beautiful thing. And then Peter goes on and uses an example. And I I don't have time to go into this. I I wrote quite a bit about this in my sermon, but I just don't have time for it based on what happened in the first service. And I I just so I just want to say this. You look up the story of Abram, Abraham and Sarah. And as you know, they when they got to be 99 and 89, uh, God promised them a child and um, and Sarah uh, acquiesced to this, even though she wasn't too sure about it. And what the Bible says is that Sarah believed and trusted her master. She called him master. And, and some people have read that. And of course, men have always done this work, right? Say, well, I want my wife to call me master. Uh, well, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, and it's not biblical either. Let me tell you what master means. The word master. It means my dear husband. Isn't that beautiful? My Dear husband. Now, what the, the reason Peter uses the example of Sarah and Abraham is because Sarah respected Abraham so much that Sarah believed God was speaking through him. Isn't that the ultimate in respect, right, Debbie? When when God sees, when 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 you as a woman trust God so much that God is acting in your husband's life, that's when you can say, "My dear husband." Uh, if you believe we should do this, then we'll we'll go here or we'll do that. That's isn't that a beautiful phrase, my dear husband. So, ladies, let's review, and then we're going to get on to the men. So you've been waiting for this, right? So, uh, unfading beauty. It's about unsaved husbands, them looking over the edge of your life and saying, "Man, if that's the way my wife is going to treat me when I'm not a Christian, and when I do this and when I do that, I I, I want to know what Jesus is all about." A genuine love for Jesus is so attractive to not only a husband, but to any person. This beautiful inner light, this gentleness, which is power under God's control, this tranquility, this peace, this respect. 
that you give to your husband is life-giving. Paul says it in in chapter 5 of Ephesians that the thing, women need love like they need air. And women, or excuse me, men need respect like they need air. And some of you are saying, yeah, but my husband is, is, is not worthy of respect. You know, that's what's interesting about Paul's words in Ephesians 5. He doesn't say, if your husband is respectful, respect him. He just says, respect him. If your wife is loving, then love her. No, nope, just love her. In other words, that unconditional, uh, that unconditional love and respect that goes into making a marriage where people look over the edge and say, I don't know about this Christian thing, but that couple... That kind of love and respect is unbelievable. That kind of inner beauty in that wife, that woman who has this tranquility in her life, she has this Jesus shining in her, that's what I want to be. That's what God has called women you to be. In other words, you have to ask this question. Do I love and respect my husband in such a way that he is drawn to Jesus? Do I love, my, love, love and respect my husband in such a way that my children are drawn to Jesus? Do I love and respect my husband in such a way that the world outside of me that are watching are drawn to Jesus? That's the question, ladies, that Peter expects you to ask. Gentlemen, you might think that was uh, tough. Wait till you see what's up for you. One verse, but it is loaded. Listen to this. Husbands, in the same way, Be considerate, and that word is very soft compared to what it actually means. Be considerate as is right, excuse me, considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. What I've I've titled this section for men is simply this. Honor your wife. Honor your wife. What is our, what are we supposed to grow up to? What is our model for honoring our wives? Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church and died and gave up his life for the church. We as husbands are not only supposed to live for our wives, we are supposed to die for our wives. We are supposed to esteem them and respect them and love them and honor them in such a way that the world looks at us and sees the way we treat our wives, the way we talk to our wives, the way we give them this freedom to be all they can be, to provide a, a culture in the home and in the world, this, this freedom to be everything they can be as a woman, a mother, a grandmother, a wife, uh, a sister, uh, a businesswoman, a business owner. We give them all the freedom in the world because of this great love and respect. That word honor is so full because the word was used of Jesus originally, that Jesus honored you by dying on the cross for your sins. So, men... Are you willing to honor your, your wife in such a way that the world will look at you and say, man, that's what I want for my life. I see the way he respects her, the way he honors her. Now, let's dig into that text a little bit in verse seven. Take it apart. The word live with means to literally share the same bed. So it's not just a, the, the, the sex act is not just a biological act. It's an act of intimacy. It's an act of sharing one's soul and one's heart. And he's talking literally about that. In the King James Version, it refers to knowing your wife. And that old sense in the Old Testament of knowing means to have sexual intercourse. Well, in this, the word is much deeper. and It's much more nuanced. It means intimacy as well. But it literally means to understand your wife's heart. Okay, guys, if you get this one piece of the sermon, you're going to have a good week. <laughs> you understand your wife's heart. Don't, you know, we don't always understand their words. We certainly don't always understand their actions. But if you understand your wife's heart, what I've tried to do when I'm confused or when I'm sure he's mad at me or something, I go, okay, now stop worrying about yourself and your feelings. What's going on in Sherry? What's behind this feeling of joy or anger or sadness or brokenness? What's going on? I want to know her heart. The word know there means to intimately know who your wife is. Know what she loves, know what she believes, know what she says, know what she cares about. To know your wife, to be a student of your wife. That's what behind, what's behind these words. To encourage her as a whole person, mother, wife, employer, uh, business owner, whatever, student, to say, go for it. You know, we're not, we don't live in that time when the women stay home and just raise a family and do nothing else. That's a different time. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with that. That's still a very valuable thing. But it's a different time. It's a different context. 
We as husbands are supposed to love our wives in such a way, honor them in such a way that they feel free to live their lives fully, free to live their lives the best they can be. And we give them that freedom and that energy and that that swath. It is so powerful in the home when I've known families like that to know your wife intimately, to, to allow her to be the best she can be. Because you know what, guys, we know this. Women are amazing and they are captivating and they can do a lot more things than we can do in terms of multitasking and everything. And we need to honor them for who they are. Peter adds that beyond honoring that is uh, another word. He said uh, that you need to esteem her, to admire her, to literally the word means worship. This mean, this other word for honor, to esteem, to admire, to worship. You see, when we put our wives in the proper place in our life, one th- something that we esteem and that we love and we value, that's the most important thing in our life, when we do that, the world takes notice. And they don't take notice about how you're a, an authority. Don't be ridiculous. They take notice of how you love your wife, not how you rule the, the roost or you're in charge at home. That's ridiculous. It's how you love your wife, how you love your children in such a way that makes them want to say, man, daddy, what can I do for you? Honey, what can I do for you? That kind of esteem, that kind of honor. Now, there's another part here that might be irritating to some of you, but please hear the heart of this text. Here, Peter talks about the weaker partner. And some of you women are going, ouch, what does that mean? You know, well, first of all, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean from the original word. It's not about moral character. It's not about intellectual ability or spiritual perception. In fact, Often women have those things in greater amounts than men, moral character, intellectual ability or spiritual perception. It's talking about one thing and one thing only physical strength. And remember the context when Peter wrote it, a woman had no place in society and her only protection was her husband. OK, so it's important that he's talking about that. She's a weaker partner. Physically, you protect her now today. Now, when we say that today, it seems kind of weird, but it's not. Think about it. Men in general are stronger than women. Now, if that's offensive to you, I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. It's like saying uh, Anglo men in general are larger and stronger than Asian men. That's not saying anything about Asian men, that there's anything wrong with them or anything less about them. That's just a fact. Okay, that's that's the context in which. But you look underneath that teaching and here's what the word weaker partner means. Literally, it's translated weaker vessel. And it's like this vase, this fragile China vase that is so sacred and so expensive and so set apart and of such great worth that you will do anything to take care of it. You will do anything to provide a place and a space for that to do what it's supposed to do. And that's just simply be magnificent. That's the meaning of this text. Some men want their wives to be a combination of Florence Nightingale, Martha Stewart and Angelina Jolie. And, but they're not. And in fact, I don't even know that those women are real. We've never really actually seen them. We've just seen pictures of them. Right. But, but what, what Peter is saying here is that, that your wife, when you treat her the way you're supposed to, she is the sacred, precious creation of God. She is amazing. She is remarkable. And when you love her the right way, it gives her the freedom to be fully what God wants her to be. And then Paul, or excuse me, Peter adds this amazing thing that says, okay, if you don't fully understand how this is supposed to be equal, no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no men or women, we're all one in Christ. If you don't fully understand that, let me say it in another way. And this is really important. Look at what he says. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as is right, as considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner, that that um, that that weaker vessel, that beautiful thing. Uh, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Do you know how revolutionary that was? Women were on the way outside of faith. They were just along to make babies, make food and clean up. OK, but. Jesus changed everything. And he told Peter, and Peter, you need to know this. You need to pass this on to your audience. Women are the exact same as heirs of Christ. It's no longer the firstborn son or the secondborn son or the thirdborn son. And if you run out of sons, you go to a nephew because for heaven, heaven forbid it be a girl, right? You are equal heirs in the grace of life. Here's what Jesus is saying. Husbands, you better treat your wife in such a way that the world looks at your life and says, Man, look at the respect. Look at the way he honors his wife. 
Look at the way he says, go for it, honey. Do whatever you want to do, whatever you can do. Look at the way he affirms her in her motherhood. Look at the way he does all of this and says, you are incredible. Look at the way. And the world looks at that and they said, you know what? Again, I don't know what it means to be a Christian or anything, but I want that. Women flock to that. I want a man who will treat me that way. Because a man that treats me that way is a man I have no problem saying, you know what? Yeah, I'll go along with you. Yeah, I'll do what you think is right. I'll do what you think is right. There's no problem whatsoever when you have a man that loves and honors a woman the way that God has called you to love and honor your wife. Peter adds something else. He said, you know what? If you don't do this thing right, and this is where the great responsibility comes in, he says, literally, you'll hinder your prayers. Let me tell you what that means in the original language. And I'll put it bluntly. Men, if you devalue your wife, you can't get through to God. You say, what? That's exactly what this text is saying. If you devalue your wife, if you put her down, if you drop her in significance or worthiness, if somehow you think you are over her or you're authoritative over her, if you put her down, you have broken that relationship that you have with God. You fix that. You do that right. And that opens up all of what God wants for your life and your life as a couple. So, gentlemen, let's review. You have tremendous responsibility as a man of God to be a student of your wife, to know her heart, to encourage her, to bless her, to honor her and esteem her like a treasured possession She is a designer original. She is the heir of grace. She has every bit of right to be in the presence of God as you do. You are amazing. Your wife is amazing. And when the world looks at you and when they look at her and they say, when I see the way you treat your wife and you love and respect her the way that you are, it makes me want to be to know Jesus. If that's what Jesus does in your relationship, it makes me want to know Jesus. Gentlemen, that's the question you ask. Do I love and respect my wife in such a way that my kids look at me and say, I want a marriage like that? Do I love and respect and esteem and honor my wife in such a way that the world looks at our marriage and says, you know what? This Jesus must have something to do with it because I want that for my life. That's what God is calling us to as men and women of God. So there's a lot of context here, a lot of amazing things, but I would close just by using uh, Jesus word, excuse me, Peter's words about Jesus in chapter two, verse 21, when he wrote this, if you, this whole section about uh, being an authority over civil authority, slaves, uh, relationships, this whole thing, you go back to two twenty-one to find that umbrella text. And here's Here it is to this. You were called because Christ suffered for you. You think somebody, do you think Christ wanted to give over his authority to Rome or to the Jewish religious leaders? But he did. He freely gave over his rights to those people. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you one example. Listen to this, that you should follow in his steps. I want the world to look at you, to look at your marriage to look at your relationship, to look at the way you treat your boss, the way you teach your employees, to look at your children. I want the world to look and say, the way he's living his life, the way she's living her life, is because they are following the steps of Jesus. The way Jesus treated women, the way Jesus treated slaves, the way Jesus treated homosexuals, the way Jesus treated people of color, the way Jesus treated anybody that was on the outskirts of society, we treat people like that. We love them like that. And the whole world will take notice and say, I want that. I want Jesus. I'm tired of the Christian thing, but I want that. When it comes to our marriages, God wants the world to look at us and say, man, if you treat your wife like that, if you treat your husband like that, that's what I want. That's what I want. Would you bow your heads with me, please?